Hey guys, it's Morgan here. I want to welcome you to Young Adults Today podcast, where we talk about reaching young adults in our world today. I'm going to toss it over to our hosts, Micah and Josiah Keneally. What's up, guys? Hope you're feeling alive right now. I'm Micah Keneally, and I want to welcome you to Young Today podcast, where we talk about reaching young adults in our world today. And as like always, I am right next to one of my best friends, my the best friend, Josiah Keneally, who is the co-host of this show and just brings a lot of fun energy. And Josiah is one to find some amazing speakers that we get to engage with online and across the border. So Josiah, I know that you have um, relationship investment and equity and just years of memories probably with this guest that many of us don't even know. So Josiah, would you take some time and just welcome who is our special guest today? For sure. You're right that I have fun when I get to send emails inviting people onto the show. I have fun writing the questions and there's a lot that does happen behind the scenes that probably people listening to the podcast haven't thought about, but there is some behind the scenes work and that's so, so fun. I love it. And when we started the podcast, one of the friends that I thought of right away, because basically anytime I have any sort of creative idea, I talk to him. Mm-hmm. And Clint Reddy is a dear, dear friend of ours, um, spanning a friendship longer than a decade for sure. And um, Young Adults Today podcast is going to be better. We're in for a treat with this special guest of Clint Reddy, who's the Connections Director at River Valley Church, a multi-site church with nine campuses here in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Clint is literally one of the brightest minds and most brilliant people I've ever met in leadership. Clint is married to Annie. Together they have three amazing kids. And Clint stood beside us on June 30th, 2017 for our wedding day and is a friend of ours for a lifetime. So Clint, welcome to the show. Thanks for hopping on Zoom with us this morning. Micah and Josiah, what what a pleasure to be here. Thank you for including me in this. I've been listening as much as I can to what you guys are doing. Love it. It's inspiring. It's insightful. It's applicable. So I'm going to try to do my best to kind of live up to that and keep adding some value here. But what an honor to be here with you. Oh, of course. I don't think it's going to be hard for you. You just bring the intelligent factor anytime you enter a room. So... (laughs) Um, Clint, we're just going to get started right away for the listener to hear more about who you are, what God's created you to do, and how you can encourage and bless others today through this podcast. So, Clint, will you just start us off with your story? Then we'll dive into a deeper conversation. Wow. Yeah, I, I love that. I, you know, it's it's so valuable to kind of hear story and hear how we're connected. I uh, uh, One of my great friends, what he tells me is that every time you tell your story, you you essentially put a piece of Velcro out there. And what he means by that is like Velcro sticks, right, to someone else's uh, story. And so I'm going to share some things potentially that listeners are going to be like, you know, I lived there. I've done that. And so story, I think, is such a great way to begin because it helps us connect, helps us realize the pieces of commonality that we have with one another. Um, My story starts in an interesting place. I was actually born not in the United States, but uh, in a country called South Africa, which is appropriately named because it's on the southern part of Africa. And uh, my uh, ethnicity is Indian. So the, my ancestry uh, traces all the way back to India. And uh, my family or, or kind of my great-great-grandparents were first brought to Africa uh, in the 1860s or so as really as indentured servants. So they came to work sugarcane fields, 
uh, when it was a, a Dutch and British colony. And, um, and so there's a large population of Indians that are in South Africa. Uh, actually, the largest population in the world outside of India is where I grew up in a place called Harpen. And some of you, uh, some of our listeners are probably aware of this, but uh, the vast majority of people who have uh, an ethnically Indian background practice Hinduism. Mm -hmm. And that was true for the majority of my family, uh, other than my grandmother. So it was my dad's mom, who was actually uh, the first believer, first Christian in our family tree. And she was brought to Christ by door-to-door missionaries. So people walking door-to-door and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And she responded. She said yes. And so as a result, my trajectory in life was radically changed, having been born into a Christian home. And uh, so, you know, South Africa has this really ugly part of its history with something called apartheid. Uh, mm-hmm. It basically was, a, it, it was a, a law that essentially said that the color of your skin or your ethnicity determined what you could or couldn't do. And so I grew up in a, in a neighborhood where all the people that I interacted with looked exactly like me because that was just the law of the land. And my dad was one that was frustrated, if you will, unsurprisingly so, with that way of life. And apartheid ends in 94 in South Africa. But by the time that was in motion, my mom and dad were looking for an opportunity to bring us to a different part of the world. And that part of the world was the United States. And so we came to the United States in 1996 and uh, we came to Minneapolis, of all places. Uh, you know, the weather in South Africa is what you would think. It's warm. I've, I'd never seen snow before in my life. And so for some reason, my mom and dad, but I think by the providence of God, brought us to Minneapolis. And so we came to Minneapolis in 96. I was nine years old. And uh, Minneapolis has been home for me ever since. Uh, given kind of that Christian background, we got involved in church and things like that. And so the church was really a huge part of our story. Uh, helping us navigate what it means to be a new person in a new country was, uh, was hard. And so the people of God were really, really instrumental for us in helping us acclimate to life in a new world. We spoke English, so we didn't have the language barrier, but they, you know, the church showed us our first Thanksgiving. They took us snowshoeing, you know, and uh, when it, there was snow out and they were like, you can still do stuff while, while it's winter. And so that left a formative mark on me. And as I look back on my own story, I, I kind of see my own journey into ministry and into being in the church as being uh, quite impacted by our first couple of years here in the United States and seeing how God's people were so um, were, were such a key part to our 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 kind of how we made it, if you will. If it wasn't for them, I think it would have been really hard for us to find friends and to and to find a home here in the U.S. But like you guys mentioned, where I'm married now, three kids, uh, Annie and I have been married for eight years uh, this June. Wow. And, um, our kids are uh, all under the age of five currently. So it's, uh, it's a busy time in the Ready household, but we're surviving as best we can, thriving, I should say. We're doing good, uh, but it, it, is, it is for sure a busy house at the current juncture. And um, uh, my journey in ministry has been really fun over the past couple of years being at River Valley. And, uh, but that, that's just a bit about me. It, it's been a crazy, crazy journey when I reflect on my own story. God's hand has been on it in a number of ways. I never would have thought, you know, as a five-year-old kid living in South Africa, that my journey would, would be such that now I live in the United States, in Minnesota, of all places, and 
uh, and being in ministry. It's just amazing to see how God has worked that through me. But that's a little bit about where I've been. And you have been some amazing places, and we'll dive into that more. And I just think of places that I've been two months ago right now at the time of recording this. I was actually in India for the first time ever and saw the fires of Varanasi and saw Hinduism and just the importance of the Ganges River to not only Hinduism, but to the whole people of India, 1.3, 1.4 billion of Earth's population lives in India. It's a massive country, and that was eye-opening to me. And I remember, speaking of eyes being open, Clint, I remember seeing a Facebook status sometime probably in 2008 or 2009 that said, hey, there's this thing, come to 2024 Ron Way. There's a young adult gathering one Monday night this summer, and Clint, you talk about Velcro. Velcro sticks. Velcro marks you forever. And that day that I went to 2024 Runway, this gathering called Rampage, um, that marked me forever. And up until that point in my life, I had never seen anything like Rampage. And can you tell us about this vision that God gave you, this dream, this idea virus? And can you tell us about that season in ministry? What was Rampage all about? What did God do? And walk us through that. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to share that. You're, you're bringing such great memories to mind for me as well. You know, I'm just, I'm thinking, man, this was almost, this was more than 10 years ago. But I, I was at the, uh, I went to school at the University of Wisconsin uh, to be a microbiology major. And the thing for me growing up is I was the smart kid in school, you know, and uh, the narrative I heard, if you're, if you've got some intelligence, or if you've got some academic savvy is you might as well try to make a ton of money and go to a good school. And so for me, I kind of grabbed that narrative and went to University of Wisconsin and studied pre-med. And obviously, as you can tell, that trajectory changed for me because I realized that I was probably chasing a dream that people told me I should chase and maybe not my own. And I remember uh, my freshman year of college, just before going back to home in Minneapolis, and I was sitting in my lofted bed, you know, at, at Wisconsin, you have these tiny dorms. So the only way you can get any space is to loft your bed up high. And so, you know, your face is almost to the ceiling. And I remember it was probably one of the first times in my life where I felt like I was hearing from God. And I was, I was a 19 year old kid at the time. And again, I grew up in church and that was part of my life, but uh, the reins, taking the reins of my faith happened in college. And it was because of it was because of the disruption I was feeling there and realizing that I needed an anchor of some sort and, and my faith was reemerging as that anchor. And I was sitting in this lofted bed and just reflecting on going back home. And it dawned on me that what I what I was grabbing in college in terms of the things that were really anchoring my faith and keeping me grounded was for sure God's word and being in his presence, but it was his people. It was being in community with others. And so I had this thought, and I don't think it was my thought, I think it was a God thought of, why don't you get your friends together when you get back home in the summer and see if you guys can pursue your faith and kind of stay connected so that when we all kind of go back to our respective colleges, both in the Twin Cities and around the country, that we kind of have those anchors in us. So I remember calling a friend of mine and I said, hey, like, what do you think? Like, why don't we get together at a park and someone could bring a guitar and we could, someone could share their faith story. We could play some ultimate Frisbee, you know, like let's just connect around our faith. And he was like, yeah, let's do that. But we should call it something. And I said, well, okay, wh why don't you name it? 
And for some reason, he chose the name Rampage, which, you know, I hear it now 10 years later, and I'm like, how in the world did people come to that thing? But, and, and I was, you know, but for, God was behind it. God was using it, and it, and it grew uh, summer by summer. The first summer for us was, it was really just hanging out in a park with some of my closest friends. And the vision for what it became was starting to be incubated uh, around that core group of people. And we thought about, man, what would it look like for us to scale this? What would it look like for us to inspire even high school students, people that are going to go into their college lifestyle pretty soon? And how do we help them make the pre-decisions to keep their faith strong, um, to, to be people that are following in the footsteps of Jesus, that are, uh, that are, that are keeping their, their minds and their bodies and their spirits in a place where they can be uh, worthy before God. And so I think, Josiah, by the time you rolled around, it was probably 2010, 2011. I don't know the date that you specifically said there, but by that time, we, we kind of had outgrew the park, if you will. And uh, we, we essentially thought, man, let's try to create an environment, a space where our faith as young adults is authentically expressed. And it's led by our peers and people who had music gifts, who had teaching gifts, who had mobilizing gifts. Like, let's just, let's just open the floodgates. Let's give people free reign to be who God intended them to be. And, uh, and God was so faithful to us. Uh, we, we were a bunch of kids that had no idea what we were doing in, in one sense. You know, we didn't have a ton of formal training or, uh, but we had people, we had mentors around us that believed in us, that gave us a shot. Um, I'm thinking of churches in our community, Cedar Valley Church being one of them that were, was so generous to the efforts that we were doing that they were like, hey, we have a building you could use and you just leave it better than you found it. You know, and, and it became this space where we connected, we grew, we were inspired. And um, it, it, it essentially, you know, if I could describe it, it was like, it was young adults be, believing that we could pursue God in ways that look like us and we had a space to do it. And the worship felt that way, the messages felt that way, the community felt that way. And so I'm, I'm really grateful, Josiah, that um, that impacted you because it impacted me in ways that I'll never forget. And it, it was the catalyst for me where God brought me today in terms of being a part of ministry. Well, and I look at one dorm dream from you, Clint, really from God. God downloads this dorm dream in the dorms of Wisconsin and the rest is history. And I remember showing up one Monday night, eating campus at the time of Cedar Valley Church and there was um, Micah Mack preached the gospel and another good friend of ours. And what's crazy is I heard him preach before, but I watched as college students, like I had never seen before responded. And there was over a hundred people, maybe out of a room of, I don't know, 200 or so young adults, a hundred of them stood and, and took a stand on the first Monday night of the summer wow. to make a decision for Jesus. And I just look at, I think that was one of the glimpses <clears throat> into maybe a pre-discovery of young adult ministry and what it could look like in my own heart and life. Mm -hmm. So I love it. Well, Clint, it sounds like God even allowed you to have the gift of connection, even at a very young age of sitting in the dorm, recognizing that first and foremost, I need to be connected to God. I need to reconnect with my faith. I need to connect with friends 
who are <clears throat> in a similar season as me, but also create an opportunity for the outsider to come in and feel connected and be exposed to what God can do and who he is and what he wants to do in every single life. And you are a connections pastor um, currently, but what have you observed about young adults and their longing for connection? That's a great question. You know, and, and I, I appreciate that's very affirming for me, Micah. Thanks for sharing that and speaking that into my life. I, I, I love the idea that we're connected together. And part of that is for sure a result of my own story, you know, like realizing that my own heritage is connected to all these different places in the world. You know, I have heritage that hails from India, but I have my, my, my formative years as a very young kid were in, on the African continent and then it came to America. And so to me, finding and trying to think through all those connections is really valuable. And I think for young adults, especially in today's day and age, kind of that globalized um, effect is, is almost ingrained in us. You know, we're, we're, we're a generation that realizes that the world that we live in is way more interconnected than we could ever think. Uh, how global markets function, how social media functions, how, uh, how geopolitics works today, like the, the, the level of connection and, the, and kind of that butterfly effect, if you will, of like one movement here and the ripple effect of how that looks all throughout the world. Um, I think our young adults today and the generations coming after us are 100% cognizant of that. We realize that we're more connected than we, that, than we may have realized because now the channels are open for us to see that connection. We watch it on the world news, we watch it on our social media feeds, we watch it even in, on the screens in our phone. And so in one sense, I think young adults realize that we're a hyper-connected, um, we live in a hyper-connected world. Mm -hmm. And as a result, it sheds light on our own individualized needs for connection. Uh, the fact that we were made for community, the fact that the, and, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, as, as we're talking right now, our, our world is still in the throngs of the coronavirus, you know, and, and the, there's tons of different um, stay at home orders that are all throughout our world, all throughout our country. And it, it highlights the fact that when we're in isolation, when we're closed off, man, that that's a really that can be traumatic. It can be really, it can be really difficult. And so in, 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 and I think young adults in particular are, are being um, almost disproportionately affected by that. Uh, the level of anxiety of depression of loneliness that I think can hit the young adult segment of our population as a result of being asked to stay at home. For sure, we can connect with one another through screens and through social, but there's something about human connectivity that happens person to person mm -hmm. that I think is really powerful. I think it speaks to our design. I think it speaks to who God created us to be. And I, but I think for young adults in particular, that's almost amplified given our awareness of how hyper-connected our world is and how much we as people value connection with one another. Right. Clint, I think that's phenomenal. And just leaning into that for a second, our world is technologically advanced and f far beyond what previous generations has been and it's globally connected mm -hmm. and yet community is a commodity that is craved right now like especially we're recording this april 3rd 2020 
I've seen people long for community and crave community and long for the opportunity to cultivate community. And they are anxious, they are depressed, they are lonelier mm -hmm. than ever because they're isolated more than ever because of the coronavirus and to flatten the curve and stop the spread. And so as a leader, can I follow that question up by just asking you, how can we as spiritual leaders become a calm, non-anxious presence, even in the world of problems surrounding us of a pandemic globally? And how can we offer connection, offer hope, offer support? And how can the church move from the building to actually be the church during a time of crisis like this? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think that what, what, what we're stepping into right now as leaders, whether that's leaders in the marketplace or leaders in, in, in ministry, is we're, we're walking through disruptive seasons. You know, the things are being challenged and things are being, um, are, are, are being kind of almost topsy-turvied in a sense. And so as a result, I think it's very important for leaders right now to be mindful that the mission God's invited us to accomplish is not going to change. So to, to have kind of this steady, non-anxious presence, I think is grounded in a conviction that the mission of God well, well, is timeless and, and, and is powerful. Mm -hmm. But that the models or the methods that we employ in order to accomplish that mission may very well change. And I think sometimes the anxiety level in leadership it grows exponentially when we mistake the method or the methodology for the mission. That's and true. when the method seems to be challenged or no longer seems to be effective, um, our anxiety can grow with that. But if we keep our focus on the mission and the fact, the fact that God wants us to bring a piece of heaven everywhere we go, that he wants us to yeah. invite people into the kingdom of God, the fact that he wants us to ensure that people find grace and find it abounding, if we keep our focus on that as the mission, and that's not going to change. And the methods that we do that may that we, it may turn online, it may de-emphasize the gathering, it may, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. then, then I feel like as leaders, we're, we're able to bring a sense of hope, a sense of conviction, a sense of steadiness, because we're pointing people back to the mission and helping them realize that the methods will change because the context always does. And I think good leaders who can navigate through these seasons well are very, very willing to be flexible Mm -hmm. uh, methods, but, but have a very strong sense of conviction and, uh, and kind of, kind of the non-negotiable imperative, if you will, is the mission. The mission's not going to change, but let's be flexible and have our methods change. That's awesome. That's a great way to, to describe that. I've never heard it described like that, which leads me to my next question is you worked with somebody um, in your past experience in the field of ministry who was on mission and had to change his method the moment that God <clears throat> started asking him to march around and do prayer circles. And he's a circle maker. And he wrote the book um, that's Mark Batterson that I'm referring to. But in, in his season, he may, have, he may have thought that, okay, what are we going to do? Are we going to march around the walls of Jericho until we get what we get? You know what I mean? So just right. like his method had to change or change because God downloaded something unique in his heart. 
and you've spent some time in Washington, D.C., working with Mark Batterson, a great leader. Um, can you just share with the audience and share with us what was that like and what did you learn during that season? Yeah, great. Uh, so, you know, my, my kind of trajectory to ministry was, you know, in one sense, kind of the spark was this whole rampage journey that God brought me on. Uh, that was early years of college. And then after I graduated college, got married a couple years after that, my wife and I decided that we wanted to go on an adventure. You know, like, let's just do something different. And so I found this uh, opportunity to be an intern through something called the Protege Program at National Community Church in Washington, D.C. So it was our first year of marriage. Amy and I got married in June of 2012. And then we, uh, we kind of decided to leave everything that we knew. I mean, it wasn't a huge move for us, but it was a big, it's still a, a significant thing. And we, in August of 2012, went to Washington, D.C. And, and, and pause right there. Pause after one second, not to interrupt. Yep. But how did you find out about this opportunity? <laughs> it's a good question, Josiah. <laughs> uh, it's, again, it goes back to our inter-hyper-connected young adult social media world. And I found it on Twitter. I, I read... <laughs> You know, yeah, I, I was reading Mark's books because um, someone, I think it was, uh, I think it was Brent Silkey, a good friend of ours that kind of told me about him as an author. And I was like, you know, I, I, I want to read a little bit more about his stuff. And so as I started to engage with his writing and with his perspective, I was really drawn to it. I was really um, inspired by the things that he was doing. And so I started following him on Twitter. And then I saw him send out a tweet that he's looking for interns. And I said, you know why not me? And so I put my name in the hat and by God's grace, the door opened for us. And so we went, lived in DC, which was a fantastic, fantastic experience, especially as a nerd. You could probably tell I'm a little bit nerdy. And so, you know, you got these, all, all these museums and all this history that's there in the DC area. Yeah. So I, I soaked that up for the year that we were there. I loved it, but they're, they're innovative. They really are. They're willing to break the mold. And, and, and here's kind of the biggest takeaway for me being in DC was that, and it's kind of dovetailing into what we talked about here in terms of mission and method, but I'm going to take it one, maybe one more angle different, but that the venue or the, or the expression uh, that the church takes on, um, that's what, that's what was really kind of, um, kind of not necessarily disruptive, but, but maybe innovative for me was that the, the venue or the expression that I'd seen church uh, primarily in my life take on was, was very similar, regardless of the church I grew up in. It was, it was an auditorium with, with a message and a worship service and probably a lobby and maybe a fellowship hall. You know, that was kind of the, the venue or the expression. But in D.C., you know, having that kind of uh, real estate is really expensive. It's really difficult to find. And so the church had to really innovate on what it would look like for them to express their faith mm. in a city where real estate and buildings are very difficult to come by. And so they were like, well, what if we started a coffee shop? And the coffee shop was kind of our expression of the gospel. And we would do coffee for a cause. And we would incarnate or put on our faith in ways where people would see Jesus, not necessarily just from a platform, but from an interaction, from the fact that the coffee you're buying here is going to help someone out there. Uh, what if we started a second run movie theater and we use that theater to show family friendly movies, show faith filled movies, and let's minister to the community through 
the fact that now we're not just a quote unquote church, but we're a people that want to add value and connect with people. There where people realize that Jesus is still the answer. And so that for me was incredibly helpful. It, it, it helped widen my scope and my perspective on what's possible in terms of how we express our faith. Because I'd grown up in a context where I had a narrower view of that. Not that it was wrong, uh, but it was, I think it was limited. And so what DC and, and Batterson and National gave me an opportunity to see for the first time was that the way I express my faith, the way I organize my faith, the way that I show my faith can look uh, really, really different based on the context. That's amazing. And, and I look at just your journey of God's faithfulness from Wisconsin to the U of M to a dorm dream of Rampage and then mm -hmm. taking a step of faith, moving cross country to National Community Church in mm -hmm. DC and then going back to Bethel Sam and being a part of River Valley Church and I would just ask you this follow-up question because of the broad view that God has now given you of the capital C church. Mm -hmm. And we see that young adults, 18 to 30 year olds are kind of a missing generation. Um, I saw a tweet just two days ago, a guy tweets out data, very accurate data from the census. And he said that 47% of evangelical Christians are 60 and above. Mm. And so um, this is just from the census. This is, you know, 2020 data. What would you say to the listener who's got their own dorm dream? They're hearing the voice of God. They're trying to start mm -hmm. a young adult ministry or movement like Rampage, or they're trying to take an existing model and adapt it to the mission of Jesus and strengthen it for all that it's worth through the power of the Holy Spirit. What would you say to the listener today about the importance of connecting young adults to the big C church? That, that's a great question. Uh, again, you guys have awesome questions. Man, you, you, you do your prep. Um, we have fun. We have fun. <laughs> you guys have fun. Man, and, and I love the fact that you do this as a couple. The best of both of you come out in moments like this. So it's really fun to be in this conversation with you. But, um, you, you know, the big C church, like, our, like the theme of our conversation has been, is that it, it is unshakable, mm -hmm. it's timeless, but the, but the expressions and the methods that it employ are always changing. And so my, my encouragement to, to leaders and to people who have dreams about what it means to connect young adults to the Big C Church is to not confuse the current expression and methods of the Big C Church as what we're trying to connect people to. So in, in, in other words, I think some of the disconnect with how young adults can maybe feel at home or present in the ways that we currently do church are the result of the statistic you just shared. If, if, the, if upwards of 40 to 50% of those that are currently in evangelical expressions of faith are over 60, then there's no doubt there's going to be a generational gap. Because mm -hmm. in the same way that we feel a generational gap with those that are older than us, they, they feel the same with those that are younger than them. And that, I don't think that's necessarily a, um, uh, something that is, is purely negative. 
but it, it reminds me that if, if the big C church is going to take steps forward in order to include and, and have young adults be part of its fabric, then there's a two-way street. The first street is that for us as young adults, we have to be willing to work intergenerationally with others. Uh, we we got to have a, a, a level of humility, uh, a posture that says we can learn from anybody. No doubt, most of the time, we're the ones who are teaching now. Uh, we'll teach people how to adapt to technology, how to understand this globalized world. We're learning faster than most can because we, we've, we've kind of grown up acclimated to how this world works. And, uh, but there's something that those that are older than us for sure can teach us. Uh, no doubt about that. Yeah. And so the, the first thing is we, we have to be much more willing intergenerationally as young adults to uh, not take on a posture of arrogance, which can be easy to do. The other street is for those that are older than us to be very mindful, almost risk-taking, to include the young adult voice at the table mm -hmm. um, to help shape ministry for the future. Uh, in, in, in other words, the, the mutuality here is for us, the posture for us is to be humble and the posture for those that are older than us to be courageous, mm. uh, to, to invite the voice in that may sometimes feel like it's quote unquote too young to be there, uh, to have a seat in order to help shape the forward path where we can work better together. And so that to me is one, one important asset of how young adults can feel more connected to the Big C Church is it has to be a unified mission. It has to be something we do together. Rather than asking young adults just to shape up and, 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 just, and just go with it. Like this is what it is now. So in order for the sake of unity, just roll with how we do things and you'll get your chance. I think, I think that creates an environment where unsurprisingly, young adults decide to go do their own thing. Yeah. And so in, in one sense, my prayer for young adults is that they don't take that bait, if you will, that they have a posture of humility and willingness to sacrifice and adapt. But no doubt, the leaders that are ahead of us and that are older than us uh, need to take some courageous steps to invite the young adult to the table so that we can shape the future together and reverse that statistic, you know, that the average uh, evangelical is, is no longer that that kind of long in years, if you will, and that it's more reflective of the vibrant faith that is happening in our young adult communities. Unfortunately, they're just happening in silos. And so I think one of the ways we bring that together, unsurprisingly, is to work better together. I think that's great to be reminded that the younger generation needs to be humble. <clears throat> the older generation needs to be courageous. And we need to link arms in that process of saying, I want to better understand you and you need to better understand us. And I think sometimes the older generation of my observation has been they're hesitant of change. Yep. We're we are a young generation where it's constantly, your phone is outdated in 365 days. You're going to get the upgrade. You're going to, you know, we want faster. We want more powerful. We want decision-making processes to go through faster. And if we don't get it the way we want it, we will start something of ourselves. And we, and then that's where I think you already hit it on the head where it's, young adults become siloed because there's a lack of understanding and a lack of playing together, if you will, and understanding the importance of receiving the baton, but also passing the baton um, within the church walls. And um, Clint, I know that you are a very intelligent person, that you see things in a way that 
I've never seen somebody process before. I've sat in the classroom at North Central University where you were um, kind of a guest speaker and you were able to download just significant amounts of information and approaches and systems and just unique thought process to us as students um, for one of my classes that I was in. But just I was like excited. I don't know if you have I'm something excited. to say. No, I don't have anything. Come on. He started breathing like I got something to say, but I guess he doesn't. Oh gosh. So Clint, if you if you were in the classroom with a bunch of um, young adult pastors and young adult ministry leaders, if you could download five minutes of a leadership teaching to those two groups of people today, what would you want them to know? Okay. Okay. That's good. That's good. Um, I, I think leadership, what I've learned is being a leader uh, and being in leadership circles and contexts is that leadership comes with three things. Um, it comes with more than that, but for the sake of this, you know, let, let's say it comes for sure with these three things. It comes with uh, power. So it comes with the ability to um, do what you want, to uh, make a decision, to make a call. Uh, it comes with a platform. So it comes with the opportunity to say what you want, to cast a vision, to bring some alignment. And I think leadership also comes with privilege. Mm. Uh, you can have what you want. You can, um, you can go to that conference. You can use that budget. You can uh, take that parking spot. And so, um, so for me, leadership comes with power, with platform, and with privilege. And the scary thing about that is that the more you lean into those as a leader, um, what can happen is the more you can grow distant from those that you lead. Sure. So in, in, in other words, the, the, the most unique part about, I think, stewarding leadership well, in one sense is to realize that the power platform and privilege that's entrusted to you uh, is yours to use. Uh, someone needs to make the call. Someone needs to cast the vision. Someone needs to um, leverage an opportunity in order to get better because, you know, the old adage, when a leader gets better, everyone can get better. I believe that that's true. But the, the paradox is that the more a leader uses that, in fact, if a leader overuses their power, their platform, and their privilege, what can happen is that those that are part of the leadership culture feel like the leader has grown so far beyond them in terms of what they can say, what they can do, and what they can have, that accountability in that environment can become really sticky. And I think one of the things we're noticing in church world today, or in just in general, in business, in, in leadership in general, is that leaders can find themselves in compromised situations if they're not willing to do the courageous thing of giving away some of yeah. their platform, some of their power, and for sure some of their privilege to others, because that's what keeps the leader humble, and that's what keeps their followers, quote unquote, close. So rather than the leader growing so far apart from those that they lead because they get to say what they want, do what they want, and have what they want, and there are people feeling like they can never have that same kind of experience, I think a really humble and courageous leader is one who is able to let someone else share a vision, let someone else make a call, let someone else park in that spot. And that creates a culture and an environment 
where the leader and those that they lead are more working alongside one another than they are working for one another, if you will. So in other words, the culture that I think great leaders build is a, a, a culture of with, a culture of alongside, rather than a culture of up and down, which can so oftentimes be what comes out of leadership when you exercise, I think rightly so, your power, platform, and privilege. And so my encouragement to leaders right now is to evaluate if they're overusing some of their power, platform, and privilege, and use this as a moment to do the radical thing of giving it away. Uh, let someone else speak. Let someone else decide. Let someone else have it. But then don't let them take the brunt of it if it's not the right call or if they didn't say the right thing. In other words, the healthy leader is able to, taking a Jim Collins reference here from his book, Good to Great, they're able to look at the world through mirrors and windows. And when things are great, all they can see is the world through a window because it's all about the team accomplishing great things. But when things turn sour, all the leader can see is the mirror. And what the reflection back in a mirror is always yourself. And so the, the healthy leader, I think, is able to give away their power platform and privilege in very strategic ways. Uh, and they're able to take the accountability if they decide to give some opportunity to someone else and may not have gone exactly as they thought, it's the leaders to own and they protect the people that, they're, that, that are part of their team. And so that to me is a, a leadership um, season that I'm finding myself in personally. Uh, how do I steward my leadership well? And how do I give away my power platform and privilege in ways where I'm not uh, forsaking the call of leadership, but mm -hmm. I'm using it as a way to invite others into the leadership process? That's so good. Clint, this is not in our notes and you don't, you don't know this question's coming, but this is something that I've just been processing when it comes to leadership. And for the last 15 years, I would say that the term leadership has just been boom, boom, just bombarding everything. You need to become a better leader. You need to read all these leadership books, etc. But the word that I'm seeing or coming across more is the word influencer, young mm -hmm. adult influencer. Would you say that there is a difference or a parallel between leadership, the term, and the responsibility of leadership versus an influencer? Do those overlap at all, or are those two very different lanes? No, I, I think it's the, 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 the greatest leaders I know are influencers. Mm -hmm. Not all influencers are quote-unquote leaders, because leadership, um, in, in terms of how it is understood, is oftentimes a... Um, it's oftentimes an indicator of some positional influence or positional authority. And so, you know, influencers today don't have to have a positional seat of authority in an organization or in a country or whatever. They, 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 their influence is the result of their relational equity. It's a result of their, their track record of performance. And so the best leaders are influencers because they realize that how they lead is not through their positional authority, it's through the influence that they have with others, which is a product of how relational they are, how much they care for others. You know, I, I love that saying, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So a, a, a leader and an influencer is someone that leads with relationship but they back it up with the credibility of their performance. They can get the job done. They can get the task done. 
you know, leadership theory is ultimately the management, managing the tension between task and relationship. Uh, because if we're going to accomplish great things, we can't do it alone. We have to do it with people, which right. is the relationship part. But leadership means nothing if nothing gets done. And so the task part is, is, is part and parcel of what it means to be a good leader. And so for me, I think the best leaders are influencers. And if you can create um, or if you can learn how to be an influencer, you're, you are a leader in the, in, in, in the essence of the word. And you're going to only become a better positional leader when you build your leadership acumen on, the, on, on a foundation of influence rather than on, well, if I, now I, rather than position. So oh, if, once I become the CEO, once I become the lead pastor, then I'll be able to do X, Y, and Z. That, that's building your leadership on positional opportunity. Uh, building your leadership in influence, though, doesn't, doesn't mean you have to, quote unquote, wait for the chance to be the guy or the gal that gets to call the shots, um, because you've already learned the habits and the foundations on how to lead through others and how to get things done in a way that um, boosts your credibility as someone who's a performer, if you will. I love it. My <clears throat> key takeaway from that Clint Reddy School of Leadership thought is... Um, you know, you use, you use kind of a couple different sets of words and words really matter mm-hmm. because they have, they mean something and they have a connotation and you use the words like you could do ministry for people or you could lead two people like four or two is on one side. And that's, that's where power platform and privilege can get out of balance is when it's four or yep. two. Mm-hmm. And then you use this other word, which was in, a, in the most best senses, it was opposite. Yeah, doing ministry with people, right? It's right. being leadership with people. Mm-hmm. It's being on a team with people, and sharing power, sharing mm-hmm. platform, and sharing privilege. So I love that, and that leads us to our last section, Clint. And if you're up for the challenge, we okay. have five questions, which you get to share five thoughts in five minutes. So this is rapid fire, okay. kind of boom, boom. The timer will start now. Okay. And question number one. Will you talk about how you see different life stages within young adult ministry? Yeah, okay, that's good. To, to me, I, it, it's like an adoption curve, right? So there's early adopters, there's the adopters, and then there's late adopters. And so for me, the, the life stages of young adult ministry, the first stage of it is, is the idea of how do you build momentum? Um, how, how do you get um, how do you build a, a group of people that are with you in this kind of that guiding coalition, if you will? And then stage two is scale. How do you scale it? How do you uh, how do you ensure that it's something that can continue to reach people? And then the third stage is how do you reinvent it? So rather than it rather than being the late adopter, how do you then re become an early adopter to the new thing that God has? So how do you build momentum, which I think is mostly around building a group of people, a guiding coalition? a group of people that are with you, then how do you scale, which I think is all about trying to, trying to get feedback from people who are being ministered to, how do we learn from them? And then reinventing, I think, is how do you be opportunistic and in prayer? How do you anticipate where something's going to go next? So th- those to me are kind of stages of life of young adult ministry. That's perfect. All right, question number two, if you could give us one thing about parenting advice, what would it be? To us, or maybe the listener. <laughs> uh, man, 
you probably shouldn't ask me this question. I had three rugrats running around and I, they're trying to, it's all about trying to keep them in line. Um, parenting advice for me is, and, and again, this can be difficult when, if you're a single parent, which I know is for sure the reality for, for a lot of people today. And if, if it's, if you are a single parent, then I, I would encourage you to try to find a, someone you can tag team with another family member or um, a, a parent or a friend, but not doing it alone uh, as a parent and trying and being on the same page as much as you can. Um, I think sometimes the difficulty that we find in parenting our kids is they're smart enough, even at four or five years old to know how to, um, to, to know which one is a little softer, which one has a little bit more, you know, can be a bit more adaptable, which one you know, is, is sleep deprived and you can get what you want. And so um, I think not, not that kids are manipulative, but they, but they kind of see the path forward to what they want. And the more parents can be on top of it and be with one another and on the same page is great. And so for single parents too, if you can just have someone else in your corner, doing it alone is really hard. And uh, parenting alone can be really hard. And so I, I think the more that we can have people in our corner and be on the same page with each other is really helpful. That's good. Amazing. I, I took notes. Question three of five is if you could ask us one question today, what would it be? I, I would ask you a similar question on parenting. As you guys anticipate uh, new life that you're stewarding, what, what's the one thing you're most excited about, the one thing you're most anxious about? Oh, man. I think for me, what I'm most excited about, we do not know the gender. So I think meeting them and being able to pray over them these last eight and a half months has just been such an honor and a privilege. So to be able to physically meet them and greet them into the world um, what makes me the most anxious is just, it's our new, it's our first child right. in addition to a COVID world currently. So my mind goes towards the hospital, the coming home, is Josiah going to be in the room? Like all those insecurities come out. Yeah. So I yeah. think for me, that's maybe like the pre-parenting anxiety coming yeah. out. <laughs> yes, no doubt. No doubt about that. For me, Clint, um, I'm excited to hold this baby. Yes. I've never wanted to hold. I have like baby fever. I want to hold this baby. I can't wait. And the thing that I'm scared about is two things. Number one, tears. I don't know what to do when they cry. Yep. Number two, diapers. <laughs> so, you'll, you'll master the diapers in a week, Josiah. Don't worry about that. That's the least of your concerns. <laughs> Being honest. All right, so question four, what would you be willing to tell us, or would you be willing to tell us one of your most epic failures that you've experienced in ministry or leadership thus far? Ah, uh, wow. Well, now I have to, right, because you've, you've set me up here. The, 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 the biggest leadership failures for me, and, and, and it's a recurring thing, is it goes back to, so this is why when you gave me an opportunity to talk a bit about leadership and it's the best leadership teachings come out of your own life, right? And so for me, my biggest failure is I hold on to power, platform, and privilege way more than I need to. Um, I need to trust more people. I need to open the door to more people. I love doing that stuff, but sometimes when push comes to shove, I'm like, well, I'll just do it myself and I'll just figure it out. And so the recurring thing for me is um, having the courage and the trust to let go when I need to let go good wow okay last thought is clint if you could leave a room of college pastors and young adult ministry leaders with one thing today what would you leave them with 
again, we're in this COVID world, right? We're talking and everything right now is disrupted. Everything is uh, being turned on its head. And it's the perfect time to dream um, because the paradigms and the methods um, are all out the window, at least for the time being. And we're going to emerge with this needing a new normal because mm -hmm. life, life will settle back into the way that we knew it. And my encouragement right now to leaders and, and young adult pastors, ministry uh, thinkers, influencers, is um, we have time to dream and we have space to dream. Uh, in other words, the context that we're living in invites dreaming. It just does. And so my encouragement and my prayer is that we uh, use this time now, but even time in the future, to not forsake the dream. Keep thinking, keep processing, keep inviting God into what the dream will look like for us to be better together. Amazing, Clint. I've, I agree with that. I, I sent a tweet to my drafts last night, and I said, throughout history, inconveniences have been the birthing grounds for innovation. Right. So true. And so I believe what you said I wrote down is disruption is the perfect time to dream. Yep. So leaders, we leave you with that. But this is a time that you've been mm -hmm. called for, for such a time as this. Right. We're with you. We're excited for you. We're dreaming with you. And we're here to support you and encourage you as a resource. And Clint, I just want to say thanks so much for the great conversation today. It's an honor to be here. Micah, Josiah, um, love you guys. This is so fun to be doing life with you. Obviously, we're doing it a little bit differently in these past couple of weeks through screens and through phones, but so grateful for what you guys are doing with young adults today. And um, what an honor to be part of this. So thank you. Absolutely. We appreciate it so let's, much. Let's do it again. You're invited back sometime. So thanks so much for joining us. You guys as listeners can find out more about Clint Ready, River Valley Church, and other resources when you connect with us on our website, youngadults.today. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to today's conversation on the Young Adults Today podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, go ahead and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Plug me in. I'm getting charged up right now, yeah.